On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about some rather, well, I think surprisingly cutting words from former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien about the current Liberal government. Didn't expect a slapdown like this. We'll discuss some of those comments. We're going to talk about this area and geology and fault lines and earthquakes. What do you say about that? We don't have fault lines and earthquakes. Ah, stick around. You might learn something. And Don Robertson joins us to talk sports. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This, to me, was a bit of a stunning interview that we saw from former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien the other day. He is, you will recall, a liberal. No surprise there. Everybody knows that. And more than that, he was a colleague of the current prime minister's father. He was a minister in his government. So you would expect him, I think I would, to sit there when he's interviewed and to trumpet everything that's great and glorious about the current administration. Uh, Not so much. First of all, he said that Justin Trudeau and the liberal leadership would have been better to listen to the party's old guard for some advice. Ooh, all right, there's a smack. He said he would have handled the situation with the two Michaels in China differently. Oh, okay. And then, most notably to me, he says Canada, this is his words, Canada is heading into a dark alley, speaking economically, into a dark alley. Uh, That sounds rather bleak. I want to bring in Dr. Ian Lee from the University of Ottawa. He joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, I am kind of shocked, Dr. Lee, that Jean Chrétien would say what he said rather than just pumping the Liberal Party's tires. I was really surprised to hear this. Um, If I can respectfully disagree with you, Okay, good. Um, I, I'm going to disagree, and I'll explain why. I wrote an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen Post Media Papers about five or six years ago, 2014, I think it was, and and it was about the ascension of Justin Trudeau. And what I was arguing in it, and this was before he, he threw out the old guard and told all the senators they were persona non grata, et cetera, et cetera, I said there were already a lot of signals and signs coming out of uh, Kretchen's, uh, excuse me, uh, Justin Trudeau's voice, his words, his speeches, his etc. That it was very clear that he was going to have a um, sort of a not a coup d'état, but he was going to throw out the old guard and you know just throw them over the, you know, the cliff. And and I said you know there, this is going to create problems down the road because I argued that the Liberal Party has been so successful for almost a hundred years or more because. There a there's really two parties in that party. There's two factions, to use a famous old phrase. There's the blue liberals, who are the business liberals, the the, the moderate center liberals, and then you get the red liberals. We don't use that word anymore. We now call them progressives. And the liberal party always had this struck this balance between the two. And you saw it. I mean, all the way through the the liberal party history, right down through Pierre Elliott Trudeau and through Chrétien. And they struck this balance, you know, and Mackenzie King said it most famously, lean to the left, lean to the right, straddle the center. And the voices I'm hearing, I've lived in Ottawa all my life, and I know all kinds of people, believe me, and the voices I'm hearing, uh, and I know some, you know, old-line liberals in this city, and some middle-aged liberals who've been very loyal liberals all their life, and there's an increasing unhappiness and dissatisfaction. They're still loyal liberals. But they, they, there's this belief, this narrative emerging that he's taken the party too far to the left. And I think that Mr. Kretchen, you know, because he's now, what, 82 or 83, he's at the, you know, at the very end of his life. We all know that. He knows that. And he thought, you know, 
I've got the stature of the elder statesman. I'm the elder leader of the party. So I can speak the the truth to power. I can be the silent, the voice of the silent majority of the Liberal Party. And I can speak out and say things that others can't say because they don't want to, they're too fearful, it hurt their career, whatever, whatever. And, I mean, if you look at the things he said, there were five different things. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was, I thought it was just an incredible broadside mm-hmm. uh, against the, the Liberal Party. It wasn't just inflation. It wasn't just No, inflation. and I want to get to the inflation after the break, because we do have to take a break in a second. But based on what you're saying, and I, look, I, I'm never, I never mind being corrected or clarified, and I, I appreciate that. But what you're saying is this maybe was a long time coming then for Kretchen to come out yes, and say these things. Yes, yes. I, I think this was a long time coming. He was saying not only was he and all of the old guard torn up at the bus, he, the policies, he's disagreeing with him on, on inflation. He's disagreeing with him on the China policy. He's disagreeing with him on fiscal policy and the spending. He's disagreeing with him on basically every major policy of this government. And I yeah, think he's is... sending signals to the party members across the country. It's all right to challenge Justin Trudeau. And this may be the beginning of, um, of a, a, a push, a gentle nudge or push to Mr. Trudeau that it's time to go for that famous proverbial walk in the snow. Dr. Lee, we, so let's go to this inflation idea for a second. And let's, if we can, give us a bit of an, inf- an economics lesson. For some people, this is going to be old hat and this is going to be almost patronizing to them, I'm sorry. But inflation continues to go up. And if we start to, and we are seeing inflation going up, and you're the government and you want to contain inflation or battle inflation, what are your options? Your options are, well, the obvious one is to do nothing. And that's what happened in, back in the 70s and that I think Kretchen remembers de- vividly and deeply. The alternative is to nip it in the bud with rising interest rates, although that takes an enormous courage because rising interest rates uh, are, are really unpopular and it will create an enormous blowback and there'll be uh, all kinds of people yelling and screaming, understandably. But the, the tool at the, at the hands, in the hands of government to deal with inflation, rising, rising inflation, where it's getting out of hand inflation. We're not talking just a steady 2% year after year. We're talking about inflation that's getting out of hand. It's becoming embedded. And this has been studied for forever. Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize in economics at the University of Chicago. And he said, you know, you, you can postpone and kick the problem down the road, and you can try and do wage and price controls. Canada did that in 1974 with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. They were a big bust, a big failure. And what finally brought inflation under control, it kept ranking up, ratcheting up, ratcheting up, went up to 10, 12 percent. And then finally, the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada drove interest rates up to 20 percent. I was in the bank at the time as a mortgage manager in Ottawa. I was in my 20s. And let me tell you, it was very ugly, very, very tough. I created the worst recession in, in modern times. Um, hundreds of thousands, millions of people lost their job, but it was effective. I'm not being flippant. It, it brought the inflation down from 12, 14%, double digits. It brought it down to way under 2%. But the thing is, you don't want to go down that road. That's what Kretschmer is really saying. He says, you want to stop it before it ever gets there. And he knows, because he lived through it in the, in the Pierre Trudeau government. Mm. And they kept kicking it down the road, saying they were doing a little, well, we'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of nipping and tupping, tucking. We won't really confront it. And what happened is it got worse and worse. And it kept escalating, escalating. And, and then finally, as I said, after Trudeau left office, 
uh, sorry, it was about the time Trudeau, it was Trudeau, Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau was in his last term of office. He was elected in 1980. Um, and it was really driven by the Americans, quite frankly. It wasn't Pierre Trudeau that was doing it, but they drove rates through the roof. And that's what finally squeezed inflation, killed inflation, brought, got it out of the system. But it took draconian, brutal measures. Right. And, you, and what the do we, quicker you and, move, the better. Well, and okay, and if we were to follow that example today, I think I don't even need to ask this question. We've just been listening for months now through COVID, and I get that COVID was an unusual thing, but don't worry about the debt because interest rates are going to stay low and we can manage this and it's not going to go way up and blah, blah, blah. If all of a sudden interest rates start to go way up, we've got a massive problem on our hands. We do. We do. In fact, I'll go a bit uh, farther. I'll go. Uh, I've been critical not of helping people who are on their back. Of course, of course, everyone agrees that that that's the Canadian way. It's embedded in the Unemployment Insurance Act, which was passed like eighty odd years ago. My criticism was that it was too indiscriminate. That it was not targeted enough just on those who needed help. There's tons of stories being reported. The Globe and Mail's done a great job researching this, showing they were giving out all kinds of money uh, to companies that were very profitable, and, and they didn't need to. And they were giving money to people who hadn't lost their jobs. And so what I'm arguing is that that in itself helped exacerbate the inflation. They were pouring gasoline on the fire. I'm not saying it caused the inflation. I do not believe that. But it, it made it worse when they should have been dialing it back because, you know, Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize saying it's caused, inflation is caused by excessive printing of government money, pouring on, and you have too many dollars chasing too few goods. And we did have a shortage. We have a shortage in the pandemic, partly uh, driven by the pandemic. Let's give full recognition of that. Yep. Shortage yep. of goods everywhere. But then throwing out money, to giving people even more money, injecting the billions that they did into the system. So now you've got even more money chasing these limited or scarce goods be- that have been interrupted by the pandemic, the supply chains have been interrupted, that was a recipe to push inflation up when they could have been saying, look, we're going to be really surgical. We're only going to give it to those who really need help. And they didn't. I mean, Fr- Christia Freeland admitted it basically just three days ago when she said we're going to shift it towards a targeted approach. Well, what she's saying between the lines is for the last year and a half, they weren't doing it on a targeted basis. Right. And so now you've got the options where you can raise interest rates, which would be, as we just, as you just described, would be pretty devastating. Or you can, as you say, stop pumping money into the economy. But we're talking, the government is already talking about massive multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar deficits to continue, which is doing just that. So, I mean, it looks like anything that's happening right now potentially theoretically has the result of raising inflation or continuing the and, rise and inflation. that's where i think why mr I, I don't have any i'm not a friend of mr kretcher i've only met him seen him downtown shaking his hand once in my life I, I don't want to make it sound like i'm an intimate of his i'm not i but i can read and i've certainly followed his government very very closely and i think that he's looking at this and saying you know good god you know if we keep pumping it at the door it doesn't matter whether we call it pandemic or call it universal national daycare or call it universal national pharmacare or guaranteed annual income these are multi multi billion dollar programs that are going to drive the deficit even more deeply and pump more money into the economy and Kretchen lived through that he became a cabinet minister in the 60s for goodness gracious sake under under Lester Pearson and he lived through the 70s when uh, in fact he was the finance minister if I, if I recall in 70s 
78 or 79. So he lived through this as a cabinet minister, and he saw the how pernicious it is, the destructive impact of where you start running up these deficits, and you don't rein them in, and you don't respond either through the through monetary policy increasing rates. You see, you can do, you can dampen down an economy. Textbook theory tells you this: either through tax increases to mop up excess money that's chasing scarce goods, or you can put up interest rates. They're, both policies are, are there in all the textbooks as classic responses by government. Trudeau, the father, did not do either. And now Justin Trudeau, I'm sure Gretchen is sitting there saying, oh my God, I've seen this movie before, and thinking they're going to go down this road again, run up big deficits, not dial them back with tax increases, not dial it back with with, with um with interest rate increases, and it's going to just skyrocket upward, or ratchet upward, I should say. And I think that's what he's worried about. I don't think he was doing this out of malice. He's an old man. He's at the end of his life. He's doing this because he thinks that he sees the country going down the wrong road with this suite of policies. That, that's my interpretation of why he did this. He's not, it's not a, a vendetta against Justin Trudeau. It's, he, I think he very clearly disagrees with the policies that Mr. Trudeau is putting out there. Dr. Ian Lee, we always love your insight on the show. Thanks for taking time tonight. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So let me ask you a question. Where is the greatest risk in North America for an earthquake? West Coast, right? Obviously, San Andreas Fault runs along there, all that kind of stuff. Maybe not. Maybe not. Let me read you a headline from a report on some research from McMaster's website. Here's the headline. Contrary to popular belief, Eastern Canada is more at risk of earthquakes than perceived. Here's a line from that piece. A closer look at the complex factors at play both under and on the Earth's surface shows that some of the worst risk is actually where Canadians are probably least expecting it. In a zone running from the Great Lakes to the St. Lawrence River, that includes major cities like Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, Montreal, and Quebec City. What? Let me bring in Alexander Peace. He is an assistant professor of Earth, Environment, and Society. He was one of the authors of this. He joins us now. Alexander, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you've got our attention. Um, is is this true? Is there a fault line underneath Hamilton that could cause us to have so, a yeah, big earthquake? Yeah, maybe just to explain um, a little bit. So we kind of, when we typically think of earthquakes and we're thinking of Canada, we, as you say, we're thinking of the uh, the West Coast. We're thinking of when is the, the big one going to happen? And the type of seismicity earthquake activity that we're, we're thinking about here in uh, the east and in the center of the uh, the country is a little bit different. Uh, so hopefully I can tell you a little bit more about that today. Sure, please go ahead. Because I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, all right, I've always been told that, you know, again, San Andreas Fault and West Coast yeah, yeah. and tsunamis and everything. Are we sitting on one here that no one has bothered to tell me about? So um, the it, thing I'd like to kind of emphasize here is that um, risk is kind of a product of both what's under our feet, the geology, and it's also kind of the way we prepare and deal with that risk as well. Now, in, um, East, in uh, Western Canada, we have this kind of culture of uh, preparedness where it's on people's minds and people have uh, plans and things for it. Um, but here in Ontario and Quebec especially, um, it's left at the kind of forefront of people's, um, what people are thinking about. So that kind of contributes to this, uh, this hazard. And I'd also like to take a little bit of a step back and think about what actually causes these different earthquakes as well. So I'm going to kind of take a trip back to sort of 
uh, thinking about school and uh, plate tectonics, some of these things that you might have thought about before. Um, and the way that earthquakes, the way we sort of learn about them occurring is um, the outer part of the Earth, the crust being divided into a number of rigid plates that kind of move with respect to each other. And these can slide past each other, they can slide into each other. And that's how we think of earthquakes occurring. But what's actually happening in uh, the center of the continent here is just a little bit different. Um, it's, 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 we, don't ha we don't have a plate boundary here, but what we have is uh, the interior of the continent. As we're pushing on the edges of that continent, lines of weakness and uh, other structures within the, the continent, they can become uh, active again. So that's the kind of difference in the type of seismicity that, that we're looking at here. Um, and what, one thing I would encourage listeners to do if they're interested in this is you can go on the government website, um, earthquakescanada.nrcan.gc.ca, and you can look up um, the hazard risk for your area. You can look up uh, the recent activity. And if people are interested in these things, I, I'd really like to encourage people to go and do that. So in the last, I don't know, 20 or maybe 25 years, yeah, I yeah. remember twice or three times when I've been sitting at work in the spectator building, when someone has said, did you just feel that? And there has been a couple times yeah, where there's so been a just, tremor yeah, or a so rumble. Like before we had the call today, I thought I'd just bring up the last um, 30 days of earthquake activity around here. Okay. Um, uh, we had a magnitude 2.8 earthquake in the Eastern end of uh, Lake Erie, just off uh, Norfolk County. Um, and in the last sort of 20 years, we've had a number of events up to, to three magnitude 3.8. So I should probably also say that we, we measure earthquakes on, on magnitude scales. Um, yes. So something around that, that kind of size, you know, you, you will feel it. It could cause uh, minor in infrastructure damage. Um, but as sort of hazards researchers, you know, we, we walk this line. It's like um, you have this sort of duty to inform people when you, you believe that there is a risk, but you also have this responsibility to not... On uh, you know, not give people uh, the, the you know to overplay a risk. Um, so we kind of walk that line a little bit. But our message when we put out that article was really just to kind of bring this into people's kind of imagination that we you know we do have a, a real risk here, and that the government does put it on their hazard maps, and we should perhaps think about this a little bit. Well, and I'm looking at this map that you're referring to, and it's on the uh, it's also in the document that was on the Mac website. Yeah. I think it's the same one. And you're right. There, there is, there is a number. Like there is a red. It's all red dots, and there's a lot of them right around where we are now, compared to yeah. the ones out in BC or California, where you have the huge red dots for the big magnitude ones. Ours are small, but there's a lot of them. Yeah. So there's there's two sort of things going on here. There's the sort of frequency of things, and there's also the size of them as well. Um, but one thing you've picked up on there, which is really interesting, is that band that sort of runs down the Saint Lawrence. And it comes through Quebec and then sort of down into the, the Great Lakes region. Um, and that's that's one of the major kind of um, eastern Canada um, earthquake zones. Uh, and in particular, that part of western Quebec, we call it the western Quebec seismic zone. Um, and I've actually got a field team at the moment working around uh, the Gatineau area. So just just north of Ottawa. And um, they, they, they're doing some surveying at the moment trying to determine uh, if there's any structures in that area that could be candidates for perhaps um, producing um, earthquakes. And that's actually quite a difficult task because one of, one of the things with um, working in this type of uh, situation is that a lot of the structures that we're interested in, they don't expose themselves at the surface. So we have to get quite creative with how we're going to look at them. Um, you know, we have to do some numerical models. We have to uh, use seismic surveys. So we have to 
uh, put a sound wave into the ground and look at how it bounces off structures to determine where they are. We have to sort of apply a whole kind of array of different techniques to, to look at these sorts of structures. So as I'm looking at this map again, and you're right, one of them, there's a red line that comes down the St. Lawrence, which I guess might make sense logically because you've got a, a, a chasm yeah, or like this, a, a this chunk in the... Saying before. This was the, the kind of weaknesses in the middle of the continent. Right. So we're, we're sort of p- pushing on the edges of the, the continent. And you think if you're pushing on a solid and it's got a kind of weakness somewhere in it, it's going to break along that weakness. And that's kind of, it's an analogy and it's not a perfect analogy, but uh, you can kind of see how it would work. But as I look at the map, and you're talking about the middle of the... Uh, so Saskatchewan and Manitoba are basically yeah, yeah. earthquake-free. There's no hardly any dots there at all. They're yeah. right in the middle of the country. Why should they not have pressure on them to be pressed do, from the outside? It's a process of localization. So basically, the, the stresses we're putting on the edge of the continents, they're going to they're gonna sort of manifest on the, uh, the, we call them pre-existing structures. So a structure which was created in a previous geological event becomes relevant like in present day or in a subsequent event. Um, and it's these weaknesses that allow the stress to localize onto them. And we just don't have those structures in those prairie uh, provinces uh, like we do running down the St. Lawrence. Um, that's just one of these real kind of big continental scale um, structures um, and it's just where the seismicity is focusing. Okay, Alex. So we have a minute or so left here. So we've had all these ones. And again, there's like maybe a hundred, I don't know how many, there's many, many, many tiny red dots on the map signifying some sort of activity in this area. Is there any chance that one of them someday becomes a big one or are the conditions not right for something like that? It's kind of really, really difficult to tell these things. And I'm kind of unwilling to say either way. Uh, but what I will say is the best sort of predictor of future seismicity is kind of your your past record. Um, so the, the problem with that, though, is that our instrumental record for sort of a human time span is it, kind of very short. The, the reoccurrence and reactivation interval on some of the structures we're interested in could be much longer than we have an instrumental record. So there is a kind of caveat on that, that, yes, we could potentially have something slightly larger, um, but typically looking at most intraplate areas, so the middles of continents like we are here all over the world, we are going to get lower magnitudes overall than we do at the plate boundaries. Um, but occasionally little, you know, th- things do happen. Um, so you, you can't say one way or another. Because there are on this map, there are one, two, three large-ish ones yeah, either one down the St. Lawrence really or in Western Ontario. Yeah, the one which is really famous in eastern Canada is actually offshore Newfoundland. It's a big earthquake on the Grand Banks, and uh, I believe that was possibly a magnitude 7, I think, which is really quite sizable for something um, this side of the country. Mm. It is uh, it is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to give out the uh, the website again in a moment. Uh, Alex Peace, really appreciate you helping us with this today. Thanks so much. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me on the show, and uh, I'd just like to thank all of my collaborators, my, my research team and funders and everybody else. So thank you. Excellent job. Uh, if people want to read about this and see the map that I'm talking about, which the map itself is absolutely worth looking at for quite a while here and seeing where the activity is, because I would have never guessed, um, go to just type in Brighter World. It's a McMaster University website, Brighter World, and you will be able to find the story here. And it's under analysis. Contrary to popular belief, Eastern Canada is more at risk of earthquakes than perceived. Brighter World is what you want to search for, McMaster University. You'll find it. Um, you may be on there for a little while. It is quite interesting. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
It is Monday. It is time to bring in Don Robertson, who is the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys, who have got to be getting close to starting again. The owner and operator of ComChoice Realty, the 2014 and soon to be again Dundas Citizen of the Year, who I'm guessing for the second straight week, although say second straight, we've had a few weeks not doing this because of things, uh, but for the second time in a row he's been on the show, I'm guessing not on the back porch today, Don. A little messy out there. I'm in the shop. I headed over to the shop. I had to look at a couple of things. And yeah, it's just, uh, I'm not that smart, but I'm smart enough not to sit in the back deck tonight with the wind <laughs> and the rain. It is, uh, it is not a beautiful night out, which, uh, which is fine. We have, uh, this radio is radio show is fully dried off. So we are, uh, we're ready to go here. Don, I got to tell you, I, I am of a certain age that I have lived through most of the horrible years of leafdom, in fact, all the horror, I mean, I don't think there was any really times like this before 1967. They always had a championship every few years. So I've been alive to live through all the years of the Leafs really being like really horrible in the seventies and into the eighties and disappoint. I, I, maybe I'm overstating it, but I truly cannot remember the Leafs fan base being as angry as they are right now, even last year in the spring when they lost that series to Montreal, it seems like we're at a new level of Leaf fan ire right now. Well, you and I both know that I'm older than you, so I have seen them this mad. I mean, I remember when Sittler ripped the sea off his sweater and, and Vive wanted to, to get out of town awful stretches but this is different the Leafs said after the expectations were and then Montreal beat them out and go to the finals and everybody's saying that could have been us the same thing they're saying about the Blue Jays right like all we had to do is get in the playoffs and that'd be us in the finals well it's not but the expectations and the disappointment of Marner and um his crew, you know, uh, the expectations were high. We're going to show you we're better than that. We're going to show you what we're really made out of. And everybody said, you know, as all Leaf fans do, okay, we'll give you a pass, but you got to come out, and we're not going to be impressed with anything you do during the regular season. We want to see some wins in the playoffs. So go get them. And right now they probably can't beat Mark Juris's Burlington Cougars. And the superstars who – said, hold my beer and watch us at the start of the year. Well, they're watching and they don't like what they see. So frustration, disappointment, there's lots of stuff going on. So, yes, I agree with you about the, like when Daryl Sittler took the C off and when Vive wanted out. The difference was when Vive was wanting out of Toronto, I mean, he was a star and you had Builder Lego who was with him who was pretty good and there were a couple other guys, but nobody thought they were a Stanley Cup contender. And when Sittler took the C off, I mean, they'd had some good years with Lanny McDonald and with Errol Thompson and Boria Salming, but they were now on the downside of those. McDonald had been traded and all that stuff. And no one thought they were Stanley Cup contenders. The difference now, those were angry people because it was just so ridiculous. You're right, though. I think that the expectation, you look at this team and you think they should be Stanley Cup contenders. And I think that's what's driving the fans nuts is that we've waited. The fans have waited. Speaking we, the fans, the fans have waited decades for a team that has talent like this. And it may not be a fair 
comment because I do think they do care, but they look like they don't care. That's what drives fans crazy. Well, I'll tell tell you who was uh, in recent memory, or in distant recent memory, guys that seemed to care. Wendell Clark, Darcy Tucker. So when they weren't winning, those guys at least go out and run into somebody and look like they give a damn. These guys aren't built that way. They have very few guys, Wayne Simmons, maybe Richie. But they have a very limited cast of characters, and none of their premier players hit anybody. They'd be scared to hit your wife in case they got hurt, not her. And uh, that's the difference, I think, Scott. And that's where people get upset, saying, I don't think they care. They do. They care, but it's in on their own terms, and their own terms aren't, I don't have to hit anybody to care. I have to score. So if that's how you show you care and you're not scoring, what do you do? At least Wendell would go out and run somebody over and fight Marty McSorley when they got beat 6-2 and everybody would be happy. Now they, now they can't beat uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins American League team, and they get hammered 7-1 and everybody's going, really? Show somebody you care. I think that's I think that's fundamentally the difference. These guys, these top four guys, don't have it in them to do what it takes to make it look like they're trying. Because if they're not scoring, they won't do anything else. And there's one other thing to that, and it's it's the different uh, it's the different world of hockey right now. That when you have a salary cap, the Leafs can't cover for they can't compensate for mistakes in their payroll. And so when you have a guy like Marner who is making over $10 million and not producing, I think people make him a guy who's the target and fair or not. um, You know, if you're, if you're going to make that kind of money and you demand that kind of money and you insist that you must have that kind of money to stick around making you, if not the highest paid winger, then certainly in the top two or three, and then you don't produce boy. Um, you know, I I really believe, Don, maybe I'm wrong on this one. Tell me I'm wrong. I really believe that Mitch Marner's life, and I'm saying this seriously, I believe Mitch Marner's life would be better if he had taken a million or two less. He'd still be making eight or nine million. He'd still be able to buy everything he ever wants. And I just think he would be a guy who wouldn't be tagged with all the expectations and the pressure that he's put on himself. Well, he did, and I, I don't disagree with that, Scott, and I think if he had a chance in retrospective analysis to look back and say, you know what, I don't think I played this well. It's not like it's not like he was 33 years old and he said, i got to squeeze every last nickel out of this contract I can. Like he was, what, 14 when he signed the contract? He's, <laughs> like he's, still a, he's, still a very, he's still a very young man, and he could have – done more later but you're right what what's happened is now is it and i'm I'm sure he he would like to play somewhere else and there's evidence and i believe i've read this today in a publication he's the highest paid right winger in the league and and if he's not he's in the top two or three but that's what i believe i read and you say you know you can blame mitch marner for that I think there's another guy you got to blame. There's another guy to put all his eggs in one basket. And he hasn't won a whole hell of a lot at, at the NHL level. And he has been anointed as the guy that can take us to the next level. 
and there is zero evidence that his plan is working. And we know that's a general manager, Kyle Dubas. Like I, and Kyle, you, can't totally, yeah. you can't totally blame um, Mitch Marner, but here's what I'm going to tell you that I know is a fact. If uh, Lou Lamorello's run the whole show, none of this happens. None of it. He's got enough money to pay a couple strong, big, tough defensemen to make sure that they can defend in their own zone. He doesn't believe a good defense or the best offense or the best defense is a good offense. And he knows, as any good hockey guy knows, you can't gun and run and win championships. You got to be able to hammer a couple guys and play tough in your own end and pay the price defensively. And when you've got all your marbles in one basket or eggs in one basket up front, it's a tough road to hoe. And there's only one guy that made that decision. Yeah. I mean, I say, you know, the Kyle Dubas thing, it's a really interesting one because on the one hand you say, okay, could he have, should he have told Mitch Marner sit down and if you don't play for a year, then wait it out and sit for a year. Uh, Maybe, but I got a feeling and I'm not defending Kyle Dubas entirely, but I got a feeling that the fan base and the ownership would have been all up inside him to say, you got to sign this guy, get him on the ice. And, you know, like we saw what happened with Nylander where the fans were upset, but they really, really wanted him to get signed. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I think you're right that if, that if he had taken a harder line, maybe now you're in a better position. Well, it, it, the only defense I have, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to provide a defense for Kyle Dubas. Do you think uh, the Leafs would be in this situation if Lou Lamorello, Lamorello had been a general manager? Do you think he'd have capitulated with Marner and, and, and Nylander? And by the way, Nylander is a result of Marner. Yes. Yeah. No, you're right. My, my answer to that would be, I don't think so, but I don't know that it's because of the Nylander or the Marner contract. I think that Lou Lamorello in all likelihood would not have signed John Tavares. And then you've got that, whatever it is, 11 million or $12 million left over to split between a couple of good defensemen and probably would have kept Nazem Kadri instead as your second line center. And it all trickles down from there, but they did. And they signed Tavares and, you know, and, and there you go. And, and now and that, might um, be, that might be ownership, right? That might be saying, let's make a splash here. Right. What was the other thing I was going to say? Let me tell you that. And then I'll, Oh, defend Dubas. So here's the only defense I have for the young fella. And that is that the expectations were the salary cap would continue to rise and he'd have more yes. room. Yes. But because of the pandemic, the salary cap has handcuffed them. Now, there isn't a general manager or anybody on the planet that can say, well, I saved that room on my salary cap just in case that pandemic that they talked about for the last hundred years came back. So that would be just a load of crap. But he is now handcuffed by it, which really magnifies the fabulous four, as they call them, or the big four that get all the money. I mean, that's, there, there has there has been a cascade of events that haven't worked in his favor, but the point I think we started with is Marner and uh, the big guys, they're not doing it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very interesting story, situation, fun, but maybe not so fun thing that happened in the NFL yesterday. So Tom Brady throws his 600th 
touchdown pass. No one has ever done that before in the history of the NFL. And yet one of the players accidentally, one of his teammates, gave the ball away to a fan before they realized, uh, oops, this ball really kind of is important. <laughs> so a trainer went over to get the ball from the guy saying Tom Brady really wants this ball. But it turns, and the kid and the person, the fan gave that ball back because Tom Brady wanted it, assuming he's going to get something. But now some experts are saying that ball could have been worth a half a million dollars if it had gone on auction. So my question to you is this. You and I don't have anywhere, we, we can't even fathom the kind of money that Tom Brady has. But what should Tom Brady do? Realistically, what should Tom Brady do for a guy who gave up a ball that could have been worth half a million bucks? Is a couple shirts and a hat or a helmet or a ball sufficient or what should he be doing? Give him his wife. A model. (laughs) A dream date with his wife. Yeah. Well, that's one way. Oh, forever. That's. Oh, I see. Well, I don't think the kid. I don't think the kid could afford her, though. I'm sure lifestyle is a little higher tax tax bracket. I don't know. I mean, I. I think there's. Here's how I would answer the question. And first of all, good for him to give it back to him. And oftentimes, when a bat goes in the stands, as you know, they'll give a guy a signed batting glove or they give him a signed bat by the player or something. But that's a pretty significant ball uh, to Tom Brady. And, I, you know, I, I think what Tom Brady does, and I'm sure there's a way to, you know, figure out who this guy is. Like it's Scott Radley, and he gave it back, and he's a great guy. I think Tom Brady calls him and says, what do you want? Other than the ball back, because I'd really like it, because, you know, I've been playing in the league 73 years, and that's how long it took me to, throw that many touchdown passes, but what do you want? I mean, do you want a signed jersey? Do you want a picture with me and you and your family? I mean, I I would pretty much give that guy his fantasy, and he may not have even been a Tampa Bay fan. Was it in Tampa Bay? Uh, Yes. Okay, so... So obviously the guy would have been a Tampa Bay fan, but just say, what do you want? What can I do for you? You've done something absolutely wonderful for me. And what do you want? Whether it's a Jersey I wore in the Super Bowl. I mean, Brady's got to decide how important it is and what he would give up. But I, Tom Brady, by all accounts, Scott seems to be a pretty decent kind of fella. And, you know, if it's pictures with you and your dad and your family and your cousins and, you know, swim in my pool, you know, just kind of give him whatever he wants. I, I think he'll find out it has a happy ending. But I, I would give him everything he wants other than the ball, which the ball wouldn't mean a hell of a lot to the guy, other than the fact that if experts are saying it's worth half a million dollars, now it means more to him. Right? See, when the he, reason when he, I asked, when he got it handed to him, it was just cool. Now yeah, he handed a million-dollar ball back. I asked the question because I, I wonder if other players – would freak out at Brady if he said, look, it's a half a million dollar ball. Let me give you 50 grand. Not because I have to, but because, you know, you, you, you've you given up a lot of money and it's still not equal to, but, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that you've lost a lot of money theoretically. I wonder if other players, not just in football, but in all sports would freak out because now every single person who catches something significant is going to want to have a payout. And I wonder if the if the team or anyone else goes to Brady and goes, as you say, give him a, a swim in your pool or give him a shirt or give him season tickets or whatever. You just don't give him money because that creates a terrible precedent. 
Well, that's why I, that's why I framed it that way. Because I don't think that you can say somebody said it's worth half a million bucks, kid, and I'm making you know five three trillion dollars a year. So I'll give you half a million dollars. I think what you do is give the Tampa Bay fan uh, that kid something nobody else can have other than the ball. So what? And I don't know what that is. But if the guy says, you know what, my grandpa or my dad's been a fan of yours for since you broke in and went to your same college, I mean, give him something he can't get anywhere else on the planet. Even if it's worth a hundred grand, I agree with you. You have he, he should do that versus giving cash because then every baseball is going to be worth this much money. <clears throat> uh, you know, pucks aren't going to come into it or uh, basketballs aren't going to come into it, but. But home run balls and bats going in the stands and everything else. He just, he, and I'm sure he will, give him something nobody else on the planet can have from Tom Brady and make the kid happy. Yeah, one of the things, apparently the guy said that the one thing he wants is to play a round of golf with Brady, which well, seems to me that that's like the simplest thing ever. And Brady could fly him to whatever course he wants to. And I mean, again, how much would that cost? I mean, to play a round of golf anywhere at Augusta National, if you're Tom Brady, I'm sure you can get your way onto the course and fly the guy and his guest down there. I mean, maybe you're talking about maybe 10 grand if you fly them first class. I mean, it still seems sure. like a pretty small price. Well, but, but sure. But here, here's the other way I would look at it. I, I'm going to, and Marvin, right? I'm going to back you up. Um, one of the things that we have to understand is the ball is significant to Tom Brady the value of the ball is has no consequence to him, right? Like he is, he's got more money than he'll ever spend his entire life. Like Mitch Marner, right? So it's not the money. It's the significance of it, which is why you trade something significant. It's not like Brady's ever going to, well, maybe he is. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, Pete Rose and those guys, uh, lots of older guys uh, sell off their memorabilia. The guys that are doing that, whether it's Guy Lafleur or other guys, they never made thirty million dollars a year or a billion dollars in their career. So it's not a money thing; it's a significance thing. So give the guy something of significance, and if it's it, that's what he wants around a golf, play around a golf with the guy. Yeah, it's you know, and again, I I really wonder about how much pressure, if at all, other athletes would put on this and, and w- would they blanch at something being done like this because it's setting the kind of precedent that next time now the value is this. And I remember like there have been other people and, and you know, I give them credit. I, they may be stupid, but I give them credit that they have just, if it's a significant thing they've given, I mean, Derek Jeter's I think it was his 3,000th hit that was a home run. The guy just gave him the ball and he got like a signed bat or something. Um, you know, on the one hand, I, I applaud the guy. I think, okay, that's, you know, that's that's beautiful that you're not putting a price tag on a moment and just being a, you know, a, a, a someone who's going to hold this thing hostage. On the other hand, geez, Don, I mean, how many of us can just whisk away $500,000 and go, oh, whatever. You know, like it's, so these things do have so value. There's, so there's two things I would do. First of all, I'd recommend anybody listening to this show, if they, if they get something of significance like that, 
the nice thing to do is give it back. Take it home and sleep on it and decide how you want to handle it. Just don't, through the excitement of the game, hand it back. Like, say, I'll give it to them, but I want to think about it. Like, I'm not going to not, I'm not going to deprive them of it, but I'm going to think about it. And then you can think about doing the right thing for you and your family because Derek Jeter's ball may well uh, have given that guy an opportunity to do something life-changing for his family. And if he'd have said to Derek Jeter, you know what, like, I work for a courier company. And my wife and I bought a house. We've got two kids, and I have a $400,000 mortgage. And I could really use some help here. Derek Jeter might have said, let me help you out. I mean, just pause and think about it. Don't be a pure fan and do the right thing. You're doing the right thing by giving it back to them. But recognize who you're actually giving it back to. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, one of the, one of the things that I think you just alluded to there, which I think is a really, um, again, you avoid the precedent in some ways. If you don't do it on the spot and you quietly do it afterwards, they probably could help you with your mortgage or something. And the whole world doesn't now know it can be done. You know, I'll help you out. Just let's not make everyone know that this is now the hostage price for a piece of merchandise, for a piece of memorabilia. Give me the, tell you what, give me the ball now. I'll give you a shirt. Everyone will think that it's cleaned up and that's the end of it. And tomorrow, give me a call and we'll help you out. I'd still hang on to the ball because possession is nine tenths of the law, but I'll tell you, this is, this is a prime example of when you're saying don't give them money. This is when agents start earning their money. And the agent says to them after the game, Tom, look it, be careful because if you do this, this is what, you know, you don't want Brady to react in a generous manner after the game saying, you know what, I'm going to give that guy a hundred grand for the ball. That's where agents earn their keep. And you know that agents have probably over a, plate of wings and a cup of tea have said uh you know we got to be real sure that our guys don't do anything silly here that's gonna monkey up the whole process because we're all gonna have superstars at one point connor mcdavid mitch marner austin matthews if he scores two this year like um you know what i mean there there's going to be situations arise again let's be careful how we handle this and try and do things behind closed doors especially in the U.S. when there's so much money involved, especially yeah. in the and, and NFL where there's so much money and Major League Baseball. You just, you just, oh, we got to go. You just touched on the other thing, which I hadn't even thought about. This doesn't even have to be a Tom Brady thing. Like his agent could very quietly reach out in a week without Tom Brady knowing and say, you know, because I'm sure the agents have a, uh, you know, a, a, a little supply of cash that Tom Brady has there for things that need to be looked after and ha- the agent has clearance to spend that money. And then Tom, and then you know what? Then it's nothing to do with Tom Brady and the guys looked at interesting ideas. I, I find this one fascinating though because there's so much at stake here for precedent. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I know that I saw this somewhere else and it got me thinking, and I can't even remember where I saw this question. And I think it's a very valid question. Even if the Houston Astros win this one. Does the stink that follows them from their cheating go away? Even if there's no evidence that they've cheated this year, do they ever get away from this? Or even if they win this time, are they still the cheaters? 
Not if people won't let it, Scott. I mean, if they've, if they have, uh, and I, I don't know if they're cheating this year. I mean, the world's changed. I mean, it may not be banging a bat on a drum anymore. It be, it may be electronic. Maybe they're all cheating, but I mean, I don't know if that ever leaves them, but if it doesn't leave them now, do they carry it forever? I guess that's the issue, right? If, and I say yes. Once you, I know you're not a fan uh, no. of what they did, and you no, no, they I all been booed, and you got you think they got cut some slack because they didn't have to play in front of fans, and I agree with you. But I, 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 I don't know. It's it's pre- it's pretty recent. If it was twenty years from now, you'd say, you know, cut the guys some slack. The guys are all retired, but it's pretty recent. So the if if you don't like it and not many do, then sure, you're going to carry it on a bit, I think. But the difference, Don, in the 20 years thing is that in almost every case of cheating in baseball or any other sport, the people who have been caught have been harshly penalized. And even if you manage to get to the end of your career, like some guys who were taking steroids did, they have been penalized by being kept out of the Hall of Fame. There's been a punishment, there's been a penalty to the This team, and what drives me nuts about this, this team essentially got a slap on the wrist, was able to keep their World Series, and nothing happened to them. I think I I truly believe that at minimum, every single person who could be established to have been involved should have had at least a one-year suspension. At least a one-year I suspension. I don't disagree, got but we're in, different, we're in different times. That mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't justify your comments. There's probably no better example than Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame because he admitted he bet on baseball, cut a deal with the commissioner who's now passed away, and I forget his name. He was commissioner for about 15 minutes. And uh, the point is, yeah, Pete, uh, Pete Rowe, that's what I thought it was, but I thought I'd monkey up his last name. Um, <laughs> so Pete Rose did what he did. He did things nobody else in the game has ever done, and he's still not welcome in the Hall of Fame, as are the steroid guys, right? So... If you're going to have that long a memory on that and you think somebody in a World Series, is it not the Black Sox uh, scandal? Yeah, I mean, uh, is, is as I say... Not, it, you know, kick them all out. I don't disagree. I mean, it's a different time, but boy, there was very little punishment for winning a championship. And so when you don't get people... First of all, when you're caught cheating, to me... And I realize that some people change and some people dump the bad habits or the bad practices. But to me, once a cheater, always a cheater in sports. I mean, if you, and, and not the kind where you say, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, not the type where you're trying to get a little advantage. I'm talking cheating, cheating, the kind that's illegal in the game. Uh, to me, those guys on that team, they wear it forever. And, and I, my assumption is what you just said a moment ago. My assumption is, based on past practice, that even if they're not banging on a garbage pail, they're probably cheating in some other way because that's the history. That's what they've been shown to do. And why? And it was successful, and it cost them nothing. So why would you not do it again? And I'm going to be... Okay, so it's going to take a lot of convincing to tell me that they're not trying to do something. I know, and you bring it up all the time, and I never try and defend them, but I'm going to try and find an example. So my example might be Ben Johnson. So Ben Johnson was guilty of being caught because he didn't have a good enough cover-up. 
I think the evidence will show, and you'll know the answer to this, that there were one in, one or two guys in that race that didn't cheat. Two. Somebody got the gold medal, and Ben Johnson didn't. Does that make it right? No. Are they no, cheating but, now? Go ahead. But Don, let me jump in for a sec. There was a book actually written by a British guy, and I can't remember his name, called The Dirtiest Race in History, and it, it suggested that in time, six of the eight finalists in that race in Seoul had issues where they tested positive or had some sort of drug thing. So, like, it just cast doubt on the whole thing. So, yes, Ben Johnson was the fall guy. However, to my point about once a cheater, always a cheater, what happened to Ben Johnson about two years after he came back? He had another failed drug test. Like, you just, once you've, once you've got, that's why I think that, like, I'm looking at Houston and I don't know if they're cheating. But my expectation is they're probably doing something because they're still successful and what got them there didn't cost them anything and why wouldn't you try something else? And so, so you know... Because they're, because they're tarnished, or you're, you're, you're going on the assumption that they may, may well be in the World Series now because they've redefined how they cheat. I don't know. I'll tell you what, one thing I really wish had happened, though. I mean, Alex Anthopoulos, the general manager of Atlanta, used to be the Jays GM. I'm happy for him that he's in the World Series. Good for him. He's done an amazing job. But, boy, I was hoping that Los Angeles was going to get to play Houston in the World Series because that's the team that Houston cheated against to win. And the thought of Houston having to go into Los Angeles to play some games and finally have to face the music and baseball finally not being able to hide this with their coverage and everything on the official sanction because you couldn't cover it. I think that would have been brilliant. It would have been brilliant. And I I really am disappointed that didn't happen. Anyway. Well, I, 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 I don't disagree with that position at all. But I'll tell you, Alex Anthopoulos, I think it just really proves that the Jays screwed it up when they let him go. And all the media attention of what's going on with Rogers now really kind of makes you mad if you're a Rogers uh, uh, subscriber. But I'll tell you, Alex Anthopoulos should still be running the Jays because mm-hmm. he's proven he can do a job, and he's a Canadian, and I wish him the best. And uh, But I don't disagree that poetic justice might have been to send Houston into L.A., yeah, and and I uh, here's a here's a prediction, and I have nothing to back this up with, but I, I am predicting that before he retires, Alex Anthopoulos might be the general manager of the Blue Jays again because he's still a young man and he's having wonderful success, and you know things always change. And Shapiro and Atkins, you know they've they've put together a decent team right now. Still got some flaws, but they're not going to be here forever. I, I could very easily see under a different regime where they bring back Alex Anthopoulos and. Uh, you know, we'll see. Anyway, I don't, Robertson. I don't disagree. I, I don't disagree, Scott, but I'll tell you, a lot of the key parts that the Jays are having success with, Cheryl, were left by Alex Anthopoulos. There are some. And you know, the funny part is, we got to run, but back in 2015 when he made all those trades and got rid of all those prospects and got criticized by some of the people who were coming in, Shapiro and Atkins, for leaving the cupboards bare, Show me the one player that he traded away, Anthopolis did. Show me the one player who's gone on to be a star. None there of them are one. playing. Not one. Not one. You cannot possibly blame him for that in retrospect. It was a brilliant series of moves because nobody he gave up turned out to be anything of significance, and he was able to put that team together. Anyway. 
I know, week. I know no. you have to go, but th- that tells you all you need to know about Shapiro. Well, and Anthopoulos. Right? Let's, let's, let's blame this guy with no grounds to do it. Don Robertson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. See you next Monday. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.